it was so shocking, just absolutely shocking to me to sit there. Um, and you know, I went in, met Giles, and like Giles wanted to play his remix. And I was like, actually, before the remix, like, can we hear some of the outtakes? And he was like, oh, okay. He'd like, and he pressed the buzz. He was like, could you bring the other tape? Rob's a pervert who just wants to hear outtakes. <laughs> and all this stuff was just there. And I was like, this was in a vault for 50 years and this wow. was in a vault for 50 years. And it was like, it was amusing to him that like, you know, cause like nobody had heard this stuff except like the people who were working on this project, even the people at EMI hadn't heard this yet. And, you know, and, and he was like, wow, like, he's like, really, this is a big deal. I was like, this is insane. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. <laughs> You are now tuning in to the third and final part of our absolutely amazing conversation with the one and only Rob Sheffield. If you have not heard parts one and two yet, I implore you to check them out before listening to this episode. Before we begin the episode, I just want to thank Rob again for his enthusiasm, his genuine love for the Beatles, his books, and his work at Rolling Stone, both of which make loving the Beatles much more accessible for so many people and for his time. Be sure to follow Rob on Twitter at RobChef and follow us at Beatles Earth. Follow this podcast for more episodes like this one. So speaking about the popularity of the Beatles, a hundred years from now, are they going to be as popular as they once were and as they are now? Yes. They 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 will migrate past all the media. Um the way that, you know, like maybe a hundred years ago, people were like, Well, will people still care about Shakespeare when they can see these new these new uh moving pictures that they have down at the Nickelodeon? And like then when, you know, talkies became soundies, it's like, oh, not, not a sound bunch of pictures. Like certainly like people would look into the future and see like okay, there's going to be movies, there's going to be TV, there's going to be DVDs, there's going to be VHS tapes, there's going to be cable TV, there's going to be streaming. People are going to be binging hours and hours of TV on their couches without even having to get up to, you know, to touch a remote control, let alone like touch the TV. All these, you know, different formats are going to be invented for for telling stories in a, in a you know, visual medium. But, you know, it's not going to hurt Shakespeare any. He's not getting any less famous. You know, none of this is going to interfere with the world's appreciation of Shakespeare. It's going to make Shakespeare bigger in every generation. It's going to make him mean more in every generation because he is going to translate to these stories. There's a great quote from Raymond Chandler in, um, it's, 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 it's from a late interview. And, and it's, I know this quote because it's quoted by Griel Marcus in his classic mystery train, one of the best books ever. But, you know, he's like, Shakespeare would not have looked at these, you know, modern formats like the movies or like the pulp novel, uh, you know, the screenplay. He wouldn't have looked at them and said, these are not good. He would have looked at them and he would have made them good the way he did for the theater because the theater was really, you know, decrepit, low prestige, low paying, low class, you know, like it was, it was street pop entertainment for the groundlings, like in the time that Shakespeare did it. Popular theater was just like, mass entertainment and Shakespeare was in it to make money. He was a showman. He was a hustler. And, you know, that he chose that medium to tell stories 
and that you know his language his stories everything about shakespeare just translates to every medium that comes along ever since then you know right up to the beatles like incorporating shakespeare into so many of their songs um you know i am the walrus just being like maybe the most famous example just because you know like like everybody else i had that scene from king lear memorized just because it's at the end of i am the walrus slave thou hast slain me give the letters which thou findst about me to edmund earl of gloucester is he dead sit you down father rest you like you know again a very star wars type thing like this definitely proves your star wars theory that John was just like listening to like this BBC broadcast one night. He was like, oh, I could record this and then put it on the end of like my song. Yeah. So like this, this one BBC play of King Lear is like in one of the most famous songs of the 20th century. But I feel like, yes, the Beatles will still be thriving in these formats in much the way that Shakespeare is. And in, in, in my book, you know, Dreaming the Beatles, I'm talking about stuff that has you know, migrated through time that way. And it's very difficult to predict. But like Oscar Wilde is an example I use. You know, Oscar Wilde died, you know, 120 years ago. He's much more famous now than he was in his lifetime. And he was world famous in his lifetime. He was one of the most famous right. men in England in his lifetime. Um, and he was famous and scandalous and ultimately like despised and imprisoned and and uh, persecuted in these really horrible ways. Um, but like... You know, imagine like, and I I feel part of me as an Oscar Wilde fan, I feel like he always knew that in the future, you know, he would be more famous 120 years later after his death than he was in his lifetime. And, you know, you know he was writing plays 150 years ago, but, you know, Oscar Wilde is as alive as a character as he's ever been and that he's known to more people. He means more. He's more loved to people on a deeper level than ever before. Alice in Wonderland, I feel the same way. It's from a similar time frame. Every every little kid, especially every, every little girl, like Alice in Wonderland is just a ongoing myth. You know, it's, you know, whatever kind of historicism you might try to impose on it, you know, it's particular to like Victorian childhoods or something like that. It's like, it just, you know, it survives everything. Um, Jane Austen is like that. Annie is like that. Annie is, Annie is one from like my lifetime. That, you know, I was a little kid when Annie was, a play that little kids loved. And it made sense that we loved Annie because it was a new play for little kids. It was a little girl's musical that was little girls singing to other little girls. And it right. was little girls playing other little girls, singing to other little girls in the story, but also singing to the girls in the audience. And, you know, and Annie, you know, it must have seemed in the 80s, like it was weird that Annie was still so popular in the 80s, being left over from the 70s. But like, Annie, is it's huge now on a level that like, Annie is much, much, much more fit, popular with little kids now than it was when I was a little kid. And, and the way that the story Annie survives so many different kinds of tellings. Um, you know, that great black Annie from a few years ago, like, I, I feel like that was, you know, like a great, like, just another case of the, the Annie phenomenon just expanding and evolving. And right. certainly nobody involved with Annie thought that people would still care about this 50 years later. I refuse to believe that. Absolutely no way. Um, yeah, and, and even Jay Z sampled Hard Knock Life. Yes, and it was brilliant. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I remember hearing that for the first time. I was in the car and I practically smashed into a telephone pole. I was like, now I've heard everything. This is, you know, like, and, and he's sampling Annie to be down. You know, this is not a pop move. This yeah. is like, this is how bad he is that he can sample Annie and it's in straight from the hood to the hood. 
And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's really wild that like, you know, Annie's a good example of that. You know, like there are, you know, Sherlock Holmes is a great example. You know, Sherlock Holmes, a character that when you read the Sherlock Holmes stories, he's very much from a particular time and place. He's very much a guy from like Victoria's era. He's a Victorian era Londoner. He's not even like, he doesn't really translate outside London. He's very much a London only kind of guy. And he's very much from that time period. He's very provincial in many ways in terms of time right. and space. But however, everybody still loves Sherlock Holmes. He's still the detective. When you're thinking about things logically and solving any kind of mystery, whether it's emotional or personal or sexual or or whatever it is, or if it's criminal, you're still being Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And that that, that franchise has so many different types of telling, you know, like, um, you know, whether it's the, the Lucy Liu one or the Benedict Cumberbatch one, like there's, right. you know, that story, it keeps expanding. And I love stories like that. That's my favorite thing in writing about music and writing about history and writing about culture is these stories that just keep telling themselves, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle dies. The world does not care. Everybody goes on loving Sherlock Holmes and we tell those stories to each other and we tell them to ourselves. We adapt them. You know, Gene Roddenberry passes away. Star Trek just keeps span expanding. You know, that five-year mission, it's going to be a 5,000-year mission by the time it's done. Yeah. You know, Star Wars, George Lucas, God bless him. I hope he lives another hundred years, but like that story will outlive him. You know, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola, like just did that amazing interview talking about all his plans for the future. You know, he's like, he's still making new movies. Love that beautiful old madman. He's like, he's, he's, you know, he's at an advanced age right now, but like the Godfather will absolutely go on. That's a story that yeah. people will keep telling. People still keep using their own voices to tell their own stories in the Godfather and through the Godfather, the way that they do with the Beatles, but the way that they do with Romeo and Juliet, the way that they do with David and Goliath. Like these are stories that are just, they're good stories and some stuff is just built better. A story I mentioned in the book, like I, I don't know if this is something you can relate to from your preschool teaching days, but when I was teaching English at the University of Virginia, when I was like grad school and, and, and I was teaching Jane Austen and I walked into the class just, you know, I liked Jane Austen. Who didn't like Jane Austen? Teaching Pride and Prejudice. I was like, Jesus, this is so good. And it blew my mind how the students completely flipped for it. Most of them clearly never read it before. And they wanted to argue about it constantly. Like they, you know, I tried to pimp them on the prelude and Wordsworth. They did not care about Wordsworth. They did not care about Spencer and the Fairy Queen. Not not the way I wanted them to, you know, like they they appreciated these things. They wrote brilliantly about them. But it was wild that like Jane Austen was like nothing else. And I was like, wow, some yeah, you know, this is this is like the Beatles or something. It's just built better. And yeah, <laughs> you know, some stuff it's of its time, you know, other music from the Beatles era, you know, like Motown, same thing. It's universal, it's permanent. We're gonna be listening to those Motown songs five thousand years from now. Whatever, whatever, you know, music is, whatever formats, you know, whatever languages and cultures as yet unimaginable, they're going to have some version of the stories the way that we have, you know, David and Goliath and, and Romeo and Juliet, Bonnie and Clyde, Biggie and Tupac. These are just, you know, good stories. And John and Yoko. John and Yoko. And I, I feel like that's another story that, you know, people, we feel like we know this story, you know, like, you know, so glad we still have Yoko with us. And I, I, yeah. I hope she, I hope she keeps going on because she still has so much to give. And yeah, it, I feel like 
we're all going to spend years and decades sort of catching up with the weirdness of this story. There's so much about John and Yoko that people don't know, even though they were like the world's most famous couple for most of their lives together. You know, yeah. like, I feel like people still don't know how famous Yoko was before she got with John. That's something Yoko and Linda have in common. People, they 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 don't realize that Linda McCartney was one of the top photographers in the in the music world. And that, yeah. you know, she was... She was hugely famous independently in her own world before she ever met any of the Beatles. And Yoko, you know, she was collaborating with Ornette Coleman and John Cage and Lamonte Young. She was like absolutely like top level prestige classical music artist. And I was someone who like thought of her as like visual artist, kind of a dilettante who like, you know, like attached herself to these, you know, cultural and creative outlets that she was exploring, experimenting with John. But, you know, like even I didn't realize, you know, what kind of, you know, credentials she and Linda both walked into that scene with. Patty Boyd, you know, she was the one who found out and told them about the Maharishi, you know? Yeah. She was the one who was into, you know, Eastern religion, Indian mythology. She was into you know, Indian literature. And she was the one who told George, you know, I'm going to this lecture by this guy I'm really into, the Maharishi. Maybe you should come. And George tells the other Beatles about it. And of course... All four of them come that night yeah. and they bring Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful. And the next day they get on a train totally randomly to go to Wales to join yeah. the Maharishi for the weekend. Like what a completely bizarre thing. It all comes down to Patty. People don't give Patty Boyd credit for that. That's like Patty Boyd's spiritual and intellectual interests, you know, like, and, and that the other Beatles were open to that, you know, like they were like, yeah, okay, this is a writer. We basically, that's who he was to like, Patty Boyd, she never heard him speak before she knew his books. And, and you know, the Beatles were like, this is a writer that Patty Boyd is really into. You know, let's go check it out. You know, that they had that level. They were on that level where they were so interested in, you know, the women in their lives and their intellectual interests in a way that, you know, the Stones certainly were not. I'm sorry. Mick Jagger, <laughs> he was not like going to hear lectures because, you know, because Shirley Watts thought that this guy was like a really interesting philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Instead, he was just going through her wardrobe and trying on her clothes. Yeah, yes, exactly, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like Pete Townsend was, you know, like not going to see lectures because Peg Whistle said it was a good idea. I, I, I don't know if Peg Ent was Johnson's wife. I'm just picking that out of the way, out right. of the air. But, but there's like, you know, this level of, of, you know, that the Beatles operated in where they were so like in tune with each other's ideas, so curious, and and that, you know, that these women that they, you know, brought into their orbit, you know were women who had their own intellects, their own ideas, their own perspectives. I mean, to me, like one of the mind-blowing things about the Beatles go to India story is that, you know, this is Patty Boyd's idea. It's all, it all comes from like her being interested in this writer and the other Beatles taking her seriously as a thinker and as a reader enough to, to go to this lecture. And I mean, that says a lot about the respect that they had for Patty, the respect that they had for George, but also just the respect that they had for the women in their lives and in their scenes. It's really yeah. remarkable. And like Paul learning about all this classical music stuff from Jane Asher and never trying to hide that. He's like, oh, this... I didn't know that. But like, you know, his whole thing with like, you know, and his going to, you know, the Indica Art Gallery because that was, yeah, of course. You know, that was, that was his girlfriend's brother. And, you know, that he was like, she was the one who was taking him to classical music, taking him to the opera. And, you know, he was like, you know, Jane is teaching me all this stuff and I want to know. That great quote that he gave to Ma Maureen Cleave in 66, you know. Uh, I vaguely resent anybody knowing anything that I don't know. 
Such a, it's one of my favorite Paul lines ever. It sums him up so perfectly. And that he still feels that way at 80. He's still he's still like Phoebe Bridgers. Yes, I love Phoebe Bridgers. Yeah, I love yeah. I I completely love that. He's, you know, yeah. like it, 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 he's still got that attitude. And I love that. People say it's arrogant, but that's, you know, so much of what we know is from Paul McCartney wanting to know all that stuff. And the Beatles were like totally open about like wanting to learn from the women in their lives, the adult women in their lives. You know, that, yeah. that Yoko and Linda, they, they also, they both had divorces and, you know, marriages and children that they walked into the relationship. Certainly like very different from the kind of thing that, you know, other male rock stars of their generation, like were just not interested in or capable of, um, you know, coupling up with women, like on that same, on their same level. And the Beatles, I mean, for me that the Beatles learned about the Maharishi from Patty, that's a whole, like, that's a whole realm of the Beatles story that, you know, we're just beginning to catch up with. Yes. And, you know, I hope that people aren't still thinking of Patty Boyd as just George Harrison and Eric Clapton's muse, because she deserves a lot more credit for her, her own intellectual pursuits. And, you know, that's just another thing that the Beatles were just so ahead of their own time with. Yes. And that they were, you know, looking for new models of being an adult, new models of being a, a man. Um, but I always think like there's such a tiny detail of the of the famous Beatles in India story. But like, you know, just the whole thing that all four of the Beatles were like, yeah, we should do this because like Patty likes this guy's book. That's, you know, that says a lot about Patty. It says a lot about the Beatles. And it yeah. says a lot about, you know, that they were operating this like very ahead of their time milieu. I mean, obviously, like, you know, like John had a lot of misogyny that he wanted to confront in public. Like he was a long way from being able to confront that in public. But mm -hmm. like, it, it still blows my mind that this is something that all the Beatles did. As a, as, as a group project because it was Patty Boyd's, you know, it was a lecture she was going to. Speaking of women, do you see Paul McCartney collaborating with Taylor Swift in the future? Absolutely. To, to the extent that it's, you know, weird that they haven't done it so far. Like, I guess they're just so busy. I mean, yeah. maybe they've done it and they just haven't told us about it. It would be very in character for them to, you know, maybe at midnight tonight, they'll be like, oh, by the way, we have an album, you know, like it'd be very <laughs> yeah. difficult for them to do that. Um, so, you know, we should say as far as we know, like they've enjoyed making music together, you know. They they have played together, you know, in, in occasions. They've done. I, I saw her standing there. Um, Dave Grohl has that great story about like being at Paul McCartney's house with Taylor Swift, and like Dave Grohl was like so stoned that like he like couldn't play the piano, and Paul challenged him to, and he's like Taylor Swift was the only one there who wasn't like completely stoned out of her mind. So like she goes over and starts playing the piano, and he's like. Taylor Swift just totally saved me from like looking like an idiot in front of Paul. He said, Taylor Swift was like Batman. She just came to my rescue. I love that. But that, um, that the Beatles, you know, like that they created this language that translates to pop artists from all these different worlds and all these different cultures and all these different generations. You know, I think this is partly why, you know, like people are, you know, are still going to be using this language in a in hundred years and in a thousand years. Shakespeare, yeah. you know, people write plays because that's what Shakespeare wrote, you know, like, right. Like, yeah, plays became a thing because you know, Shakespeare and, and and the theater took off as a public entertainment in his era. And there are a lot of like other greats doing it at the time that he did, you know, like Marlowe and Kidd and, and, you know, like Ben Johnson, all those guys. And yeah, but, you know, none of them were Shakespeare. And, you know, and to, to a large extent, the theater, as we know, it exists because Shakespeare, that was the format he chose to express himself in and i feel right. like you know songs are the same way certainly rock and roll i feel like now is now 
it's the music that's famous because it's what the Beatles did. Exactly. And, you know, even to the same point where music journalism is going to go on because of what you're contributing to Rolling Stone now (laughs) and of what Angie's contributing to Rolling Stone. And I just think that's really cool. Well, and some of the stuff that you're doing with this, you know, this amazing (laughs) podcast that didn't exist, you know, until now. And, you know, now, like for Beatles fans, it's funny that like for Beatles fans listening to something like your, your podcast is something, it's a resource that we didn't have 10 years ago. Now it's like, boy, like, you know, I feel like as, as a Beatle fan now, it's weird to look back on 10 years ago and go like, God, we had it rough back then. You know? <laughs> Man, we was lonely, yeah. you know, like right. <laughs> it's, it's sort of the way deadheads are always like talking about the era, you know, like the era when I was young, when like people listened to the official studio albums and the official live albums. Yeah, that's what Europe you could 72. hear. And, and maybe a few tapes if you had tapes were still a really, you know, insider thing you had to know somebody who had a tape and like most people who had a tape had a few tapes but like it, you know it's now it's it's like kind of funny that anybody like listened to the grateful dead studio albums because they were such a big fan but right you know, they, now that seems like such an impoverished time i feel like yeah it's what it is now to be a beatles fan like imagine like when all you could do is watch anthology on vhs and, yeah, you know, and listen to the studio albums, and you know, <laughs> you couldn't, you know, like listen to your podcast while watching, you know, hour thirteen of Get Back, right? <laughs> but like even like something like Get Back, it's so full of like Get Back is something, you know, it's it's so long, and yet it's got so much stuff that we will be unpacking. I mean, I don't know how many times you've watched it, probably more times than me, but I've watched it a lot of times by now, <laughs> and I'm constantly noticing stuff, and I'm like. Even if just this scene was the only part to go public, like, can you imagine like something like the scene where just, you know, Paul, Linda's coming into Abbey Road, like not Abbey Road, Twickenham Studios, obviously. And like Paul's introducing her to the crew and he's like, oh, this is Tony. Tony's a cameraman. He's like, oh, Linda's a cameraman too. And like, imagine in the nineties, if that, you know, if if somebody dug up that clip and and we saw it on MTV, that would have blown people's minds. Yeah. Like. (laughs) You know, that like Paul was like progressive on that level and just, you know, introducing Linda on that level, you know, in terms of her accomplishments as a photographer, like which were largely forgotten in the 90s and certainly are forgotten now. But but it's well that even something like that would have made such a sensation. And that's just, you know, 10 seconds in this like eight hour feast. We're going to be unpacking that for years to come. You know, I even remember in like 2008 or 2009, there was like breaking news on TV. I think it was ABC or NBC and they had this they literally had a half hour special and then the headline was like breaking news the Beatles Lady Madonna music video was not actually the Beatles recording the song Lady <gasps> Madonna <gasps> and it was like when the whole thing came out where like they were actually recording Hey Bulldog but they put the footage to the song Lady Madonna for the music video and it's it's like looking back now, it's like just wait 10 years yes. and see the kind of breaking news you're going to get. Absolutely. Well, and it's funny, like, you know, it's funny for me as a Beatles fan to like look back on some of the documents that I clung to. Like I, I, I look at, you know, bootleg VHS tapes where I paid like 20 bucks to see something like the, the I Feel Fine chocolate commercial. They did an ad for some chocolates where they're sitting on the floor eating chocolate to like, I feel fine. And I was like, just seeing that was like such a, I can't believe this exists. I have yeah. made contact. You know, like 
I'm the ape in 2001 touching the monolith, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> it's like now, like that's, you know, like stuff like that is out there in a way that it wasn't before. I love like that story, but even stuff like an anthology, like I, I remember something I remember an anthology and I was like, you know, an adult Beatle fan when anthology came out and hearing like John actually saying, you know, like, you know, those of you in the cheap receipts, you know, clap your hands, the rest yeah. of you rattle your jewelry. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd read those words millions of times, but I was like, I can't believe I'm hearing John's voice saying this. It was yeah. so bizarre. It was, it was like, I, I had never expected that. I was like, somebody had this tape and it was just sitting in a vault somewhere. And, was like, <laughs> and that's like, you know, one scene. In and of course, like everybody now, like that's, you know, it's, you know, fairly famous Beatle moment, but like nobody, it's, it's weird now to go back and think like, wow, for like my first 25 years as a Beatle fan, it had never occurred to me that I would get to hear him say that. These yeah. are words that we read and we pictured John saying them many times, but you know, stuff that we used to like, you know, the kind of bootlegs that we would like, you know, line up. It's like, Hey, there's this store. I can say the name of the store cause it's closed. It's second coming in, in Cambridge. And it was, a, you know, a store in, right next to Boston, like it was Cambridge. I had a job like right down the street and I would go after work and they would have these imports, quote unquote, they were not imports, they were bootlegs. Um, <laughs> and it was fantastic. It was around for years until uh, representatives of the law, I, I believe took an interest uh, allegedly, like I, I, but it's 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 not there anymore, but it was a, such a resource because you could find these like Beatle bootlegs. I would buy like the Beatles at the Beatles at the Beeb series which is like the Beatles, like just on the radio and they're just messing around. It's like the stuff on the Beatles and the BBC compilation, which is amazing. Right. Um, you know, but that's like a two CD, like called from it. These are just the Beatles, like just their like verbatim radio shows. And they're just like messing around and like dedicating songs to their aunties out there in Radioland. And <laughs> I was like, I can't believe I get to hear this. What a planet, yeah. you know? And um, <laughs> even though this stuff was there and like now, like this stuff is so accessible you know, to those of us who, you know, like we had to go to the ends of the earth to find this stuff. And it's really beautiful that this stuff is like accessible now. Whenever I hear Beatles rarities, like interviews or outtakes or radio shows, as you were saying, it always gives me like kind of uh, a second wind. It just takes me right back to my childhood and growing up with these four friends. And it's, it's always just so incredible being able to discover this stuff. Absolutely. And, and that like, all this stuff and that they're still finding more, you know, like, yeah, honestly, like I have to say a real, like before and after my life as a Beatle fan is, is the Sergeant Pepper box of the, um, the 50th anniversary edition. They didn't call it 50th anniversary edition, but it's the deluxe edition where they put like all these outtakes. And, um, I, I went to Abbey road to hear it. I was like, I was trapped. It was kind of like a, a sudden thing. And I, I walked into Abbey road fully confident that it was going to be like a bunch of barrel scrapings. I was like, man, like this stuff wasn't even good enough to put an anthology. Like right. <laughs> imagine they're really scraping at this time. And I was excited to hear it, you know, but I was like, yeah. you know, this is, it's, I was, I thought it was going to be just, you know, trivial footnotes to like music I already knew. Right. And uh, it was so shocking, just absolutely shocking to me to sit there um and you know, I went in, met Giles, and like Giles wanted to play his remix. And I was like, actually, before the remix, like, can we hear some of the outtakes? And he was like, oh, okay. Like, and he 
press the buzz. He was like, could you bring the other tape? Rob's a pervert who just wants to hear outtakes. <laughs> and all this stuff was just there. And I was like, this was in a vault for 50 years. And this wow. was in a vault for 50 years. And it was like, it was amusing to him that like, you know, cause like nobody had heard this stuff except like the people who were working on this project. Even the people at EMI hadn't heard this yet. And, you know, and, and he was like, wow, like, he's like, really, this is a big deal. I was like, this is insane. And, wow. um, and to hear like all those, like those variant takes where they're doing the different versions of the chord of, you know, the final chord at the end of a day in the life. Yeah. Um, just incredible. But also like something like there's this thing on the Sergeant Pepper thing where it's just Paul and George in the booth and they're talking over uh, Penny Lane because they've been doing like backup vocals for Penny Lane. And they're just like talking back and forth and they're like, like oh, that's pretty good. And they're doing like, you know, sort of like they're just kind of snapping their fingers and humming along with it. They're just like listening uh, yeah. to the playback. Yeah. And it's just like two minutes of them like talking over the song that they've recorded. Yeah, this is pretty good. This is pretty fun. Like, they're like, oh, we'll put backwards guitar in this part. And they're, you know, they're making jokes. They're really proud of what they've done. They're really confident. They're really excited. Like, it's like, oh my God, like, imagine like that, that we can listen to this now. And it must have seemed so weird to them, the idea that people would listen to this 50 years later. Certainly oh, not I'm something sure, they yeah. planned on. So, you know, yeah. they probably didn't know it was being recorded. They, you know, they, you know, EMI wasn't throwing anything away at that point, but they had no way of knowing that. I'm sure they didn't right. care. It never occurred to them that people would be listening to this conversation 50 years later, you know, like, and not just like listening once and they're like, oh, this is a curious outtake sort of way. Like I listened to that so much. It's yeah. so much. And you listen to Paul and George listening to the song that they've just created and they are so excited about it. They're, they're fans. And for a minute, they're letting themselves be really blown away by this magic they've created. And there's something beautiful and innocent and boyish about it, but also something so arrogant and you know, confident <laughs> about it. I just, I love the, like both sides of it. They're like, they're both like total egomaniacs who are like, we are geniuses. I can't believe we did this. But also they're like little kids going like, God, this is so good. Music is so transformational. And yeah. <laughs> and this is just two minutes of throwaway conversation that they never intended anybody to hear. I listen to this at least once a week, Jack. This is like wow. part of my life, you know? And like, yeah. so to me, that was a real before. I was like, the fact that there was so much new stuff in the vaults, you know, it, it like, it didn't just shock me, I guess, that I had to accept that there was all this new stuff that none of us had heard. But it also it was like real like, revelation that there's so many more new stories in this music that we're just going to keep unpacking and that, you know, our grandchildren are going to be explaining to us, you know, like when, you know, when, you know, little kids who are not born now, but like eventually one of those kids is going to say like, no, like what you don't realize about Penny Lane is, and, and they're going to hear this like cosmic connection with like, you know, other music made by the Beatles or made by other people. But, you know, like it's going to be like, you know, on a level that we can't even fathom. And it might be in a language that we have, you know, that the world hasn't learned to speak yet. But like, this is an ongoing story that the world is going to keep telling itself and that we're going to keep telling each other and that, you know, the story is going to outlive any of us. We're all, we're all going to die with the story still going on. And there's something really beautiful about that. Oh, 100%. I completely agree with you, Rob. And, you know, I, I'm sometimes I, I love to listen to the studio chatter. And I honestly think that sometimes it's as good as the song itself. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's the, the White Album stuff, that was just like completely insane. And I was not at yeah, all prepared. Yeah, for exactly. Like, and like, I, I'd, I'd love the Esher demos for a long time. That was something yeah. that I found at Second Coming in Cambridge. RIP to 
one of the great record stores <laughs> of, of my entire formative experience as a fan. But um, <laughs> it was uh, it was a place like th- that so, something like the um, the outtake, the Esher demos. They're just like kicking around at George's place, and you can hear how casual they are. And that's such a different, like, in so many of those versions, they're so much better than the versions on the White Album. And you're yeah. like, wow, Honey Pie? They're all just like sitting around in like George's beanbag chairs, you know, smoking <laughs> his jaw sticks, and, and, and they're like, you know, having, you know, Mal make the tea. And they're just banging this song out just to get it on tape. And they're going to spend months in the studio trying to make it sound as good as this. And they're never yeah. going to get close. <laughs> like, and I, I love like the, the Escher demos. Also, and until I heard those demos, I did. I thought they were the Escher demos. Like everybody called them that way. Yeah. It was one of the engineers at Abbey Road. Like it was like, and I was like, um, you keep calling them Escher. Like, have I been pronouncing it wrong all my life? And he's like, yeah. He's like, don't worry. Nobody knows this. You know, and yet wow. another story the world has yet to learn. Most fans hadn't even heard the Esher demos at that point. And that's something now that's, you know, such a huge part of the White Album story. But now, like, you know, like you don't have to be a snob or an expert or a collector to hear that stuff. Right. You know, anybody can hear it. And it's like, it's beautiful that that's part of the story of the music. But, you know, I'd still never heard stuff like, you know, John doing Julia, you know, and saying like, oh, you know, Paul, what do you think of this one? You know, and I'm like, well, yeah. that completely changes everything I thought about John and Paul's relationship. And, you know, and, and the beautiful outtake where he's he's playing it for George Martin and he's really bashful about playing a song that personal for George Martin. Yeah. He's like, it's really hard to sing this song, you know. And yeah. George and George Martin very kindly says, Well, it's a very it's a very difficult song to play, John. It's very hard to sing this, you know. It's a very hard song, though. Yeah. Really like get such a vivid sense of like you know, George Martin and how how selflessly he made it possible for them to do this stuff. Like yeah. on the level that, you know, like he wasn't getting credit for at the time and had no way of knowing that like future generations would revere him the way he did for this stuff that, you know, like he wasn't even getting paid for, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, you know, so many of the people in this story who like felt unappreciated in their time, you know, Jeff Emmerich sadly felt kind of bitter at the end of his life. Like if he only knew like how, you know, how wide open his future is, you know, like the biggest Jeff Emmerich fans in the world haven't even been born yet. You know, he's just part of the story of this music that's just going to get bigger. And I feel like so much of this story, you know, there's so much wonderful past that's in this story that we're unpacking, but I feel like the really scary and and inspiring, but also intimidating thing about this music is how much future is in it because we don't know what forms this story is going to take, but it's, it's going to keep going on. And as this material continues to be released, you obviously play a huge role in introducing it to the public through your work and your writing. Do you see yourself continuing to write extensive reviews about this new material from the Beatles? I sure will, even if, you know, by then nobody's reading them and I'm just, you know, like, you know, like, (laughs) you know, 50 years from now when I'm in my nursing home, I'm going to be tracing on my wallpaper you know like maybe we'll be reading what i'm writing i'm just gonna be writing in the dust on my lampshade but you know i I feel like you know you too i feel like all beetle fans are like this like yeah we something about the beatles we hear our story in their story right we hear our feelings in their music we hear our lives in their music we have no idea how people fell in love before the beatles songs taught us Right. How to do it. We have no idea how people, <laughs> people felt sad and self-pitying until the Beatles taught us to do it in their music. Like those songs are just part of our emotional language that we don't even, you know, we don't even think about life without. And I feel like, you know, as those stories keep going, you know, we're just going to keep hearing, you know, 
more in this music and also like more in this story. And I feel like, you know, I, as you know, just one of many, you know, witnesses and storytellers in this, I'm just a fan who just, you know, I, I just, I love these late night Beatles arguments with my friends and I just want to keep them going. And, you know, I guess just, you know, I guess I would hope that I'm passing it on, but that's something, you know, I guess that every, as Keith Richards once said, the epitaph for every musician, you know, should be, he passed it on, you know, or she passed it on or they passed it on, but like, that's all they want to do. You know, like, it's like they, you know, they heard something they loved that told them, told them who they were as a human being. And they just wanted to pass that on to other people. And for someone like Keith Richards, it's a very archival thing. He sees himself as passing on the blues tradition to like future generations, which he has done and will continue to do long after he's gone, but which will never happen. But I I feel like, you know, passing it on is really, it's, you know, you with your podcast, me with my books, it's, you know, that's all we want to do is just like pass this on to other people who love this stuff as much as we do. And, you know, they will pass it on and they will have their own stories to add to it. And are you working on any projects at the moment? I'm working on everything now. Oh my God. I'm always, I'm always writing too many books at the same time. That's my curse. Like as a writer, like, uh, yeah. So I, you know, yes. So I'm, 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 I'm working on and hoping to be like, yes, working on is, is that's, that's, that's the way I'll put it right now. I'm working on, <laughs> I'm working on too many books and, and yes, working on them, but they're exciting, you know, because when you write about music and it's something that, you know, for you with your podcast or like, you know, and anybody who is like fascinated with music and the stories that go into it and the stories that go into listening to it, you know, um, people's stories about listening to being in the Beatles are, you know, as fun as stories about being in the Beatles for me. And, um, to me, like the, these, these living in these stories is, it's something that, you know, it, it's inspiring and it keeps me, you know, enthusiastic for more that's that's always inspiring to me so i always want to hear more of these stories and you know because of like you know like artists like you working in the medium that you're working in you know we have more access to more stories and more perspectives i mean i learn more about the beatles every year i learn more about the beatles every week than i used to in a year you know because like there's there's so many ways for people to tell their stories about the beatles now and you know whether it's you know like we were talking about teenage fan bloggers who are like teenage girls who are like posting about the Beatles in a, you know, Stan perspective who, you know, are doing insane amounts of research to tell the stories of these Beatles stories that are unknown to even longtime fans like me, you know, right. everybody, some, some, that's something about the Beatles is that it's a story that we love to keep telling and that we love to keep passing on. And everybody tells it puts their own different version of it out there. Kind of just like the Beatles thought they were doing with Chuck Berry and, you know, Ray Charles, like, and, Buddy Holly and Carol King and Smokey Robinson, they were just, you know, they're just trying to do their own version of this. Like, you know, only in their wildest dreams did they think of being as good as Chuck Berry or Carol King or Smokey Robinson or or yeah. Smokey or, or or Buddy Holly or Elvis. Like, like they just wanted to, you know, do their version of it and and put that into the world. Yeah. And that's something that's so beautiful about their versions. You know, like when they do a Smokey Robinson song, they're not trying to sing as beautifully as Smokey Robinson because they can't, because nobody in the history of the planet has ever been able to, um, but that, you know, they're just, they're telling their version as Chuck Berry fans, what their version of the Chuck Berry story is. And they're yeah. just putting that out into the world. It became part of the Chuck Berry story and it became the Beatles story. And that's something, you know, we're all doing with the Beatles. We're all hearing some 
version of ourselves in the story and putting that out there in in every medium that artists are working in. Yeah, it's kind of like the fans are like the gasoline for the cars that will transport these artists way into the future to give you like a really bad metaphor. <laughs> the future that will have neither cars nor gasoline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The whatever space trains uh, that the kids will be riding by the time they hear this. But um, yet some kind of like, it's it's weird how the Beatles story, something that's almost universal about the Beatles story, it makes whoever touches, makes them want to tell their story, whatever that is, right? So like, think about the Sex Pistols who made such a shtick out of hating the Beatles. And like, that was part of their thing. They made such a grand joke out of hearing the Beatles. They heard the Beatles and they heard their story and they wanted to tell their version of the story, which is we are young English kids. We are really bored and betrayed and, and disappointed by this England that we're born into. So we right. hate the Beatles. And yeah. that that became like such a beautiful story in itself that has inspired so many people. Um, yeah. it, it's amazing that that's something about the Beatles. That's, you know, like I hate to keep comparing them to Shakespeare. And I made yeah. my, when I was writing this book, I made my editor promise that I would keep the Shakespeare comparisons down to a minimum because they sound <laughs> ridiculous and pompous even when they're true, which they yeah. often are. But um, people, you know, at, as Harold Bloom said about Shakespeare, like people, you know, people as a, as a culture, as a civilization, learned to listen to themselves by reading Shakespeare and by seeing Shakespeare plays, by hearing those characters communicate with themselves. And that, you know, his grand statement is that's, how Shakespeare invented what we now think of as humanity is that like mm-hmm. that kind of introspection that his characters have that I feel like the Beatles, it's a similar thing. Like what keeps them going on and will keep them going on. And we're only at the beginning of the Beatles story at this point that almost anybody who's touched by the Beatles, hears their own story and it makes them think, Hey, I've got a story too. And so certainly like for the Beatles writing, you know, songs like, please please me and, and love me do in these really like you know relatively shabby areas of, of liverpool you know in in the late 1950s early 1960s you know and you know they certainly didn't envision a future where you know you know a poor blind black kid in detroit born to unbelievable poverty like way beyond anything even ringo knew um named steveland morris uh is going to um learn to play a lot of instruments um, even though he's blind and he's going to hear the Beatles and he's going to say, you know, he's going to be a proficient, like, you know, Ray Charles imitator. That's basically his professional gig is little Stevie wonder, but like, he's going to hear the Beatles. He's going to say, I want to write songs like that. And he's going to record Beatles songs, but then he's going to write his own Beatles songs. You know, uh, don't you worry about a thing, you know, and, and you are the sunshine of my life. They mm-hmm. are as great Paul songs as anything Paul wrote in the seventies. And Paul would be the first one to say so. Paul ended up, you know, like doing collaborations with Stevie Wonder on and off for the rest of their both their careers. Yeah. Um, that the Beatles they could not have imagined that Stevie Wonder was out there, this like incredibly like poor, scared, blind like kid who the world was definitely out to crush. Stevie Wonder yeah. born into a hostile world that did not want him to exist, and he became an artist in large part listening to the Beatles, and that you know like lots of like other you know something like you know, Sylvester, you know, like gay drag queen, disco jiva genius in, in San Francisco in the seventies, you know, here's Blackbird and like decides Blackbird is a song about him and a song about being gay in the seventies and coming out. We were only waiting for this moment to rise and turns it into this African-American queer pride anthem. 
And like on stage in San Francisco, Sylvester's doing this disco version of Blackbird. And, you know, he's got Martha Wash and Abora Rhodes singing background. They later, later became the Weather Girls, but very famous like soul singers in their own right. And like these are like, you know, black artists who the world wanted very much to ignore and who were never supposed to become famous artists. But like they're doing Blackbird and for them, it's their story and it's their audience's story. And they're passing that on to the audience in that way. The first time I heard Sylvester's version of Blackbird, I was like, this is astounding because it like it sounds nothing like the original. And he's right. taking the story somewhere totally new and he's making it his in a way that sums up this historical moment. And he's singing it to this audience. It's 1979 in San Francisco. And they're like, yes, this is our moment. We were only waiting for this moment to arise. And I feel like even now hearing that is such an inspiring and, and audacious way to transpose the Beatles music. I think about the yeah. Wu-Tang Clan, you know, growing up as, you know, like the poorest of the poor, ghetto kids in the hood in Staten Island. You know, even the rest of New York doesn't care about them, you know, yeah. like, and they're making hip hop <laughs> in Staten Island, which, you yeah. know, like could not matter less in the rest of the, of, of the city. And yet yeah. they're, they're, you know, they're taking inspiration from chess, from, you know, religion, from esoteric mythology, from kung fu movies. Shaolin shadow boxing and the Wu-Tang sword style. On guard, I'll let you try my Wu-Tang style. But also they're listening to the Beatles. That's part of what right. they're doing. They're taking inspiration from everywhere. All these artists I've mentioned have. But like, to me, it's amazing that all these different artists who in many ways have nothing in common, but all over the world, they hear the Beatles and they're like, yes, you know, my story, which is nothing like the Beatles. I'm forgetting the director of the name of the director who just did drive my car. I'm sorry. I can't remember his name, but like, he, you know, like the way he said, like the Beatles inspired him to tell like his story with like this really like dark, dramatic Japanese film that has nothing to do with the Beatles. Or you think of like Murakami's novels, all these artists and all these different forms, like they have nothing in common with each other, except they heard the Beatles and that made them think that their story should be told. And that, yeah. that that's what the Beatles do to us. And we'll keep doing to us. We hear the Beatles and like the Beatles story. We love the Beatles story, but what, what makes it mean something is that people around the world, we hear the Beatles and it tells us what our story is. And it tells us to go out there and tell our story. Yeah. And I hope these episodes can help people do that as well. You are doing it. You are, you know, you are, you are telling the stories and tell, like, I, I, I love the perspectives that you have here. Uh, I love the episode that you did with my friend, Mike, Great, wonderful, brilliant, genius, Rolling Stone colleague, Annie Martosio. And, and you know, you had her like talking about like let it be and you know, arguments I've had with her. And it's just like her like her amazing perspectives on the Beatles, which are so eye-opening for me always. But like you know, I, I feel like you are, you know, passing the story of this music on as, as, as so many of us who love this music were just trying to do justice to it and to pass it on to other people who love it. Oh, well, thank you, Rob. And you know, this conversation has been hands down the best and my favorite and the most <laughs> in-depth conversation I think I've ever had about the Beatles, which I have to thank you for because you and I can both literally talk about this for 24 hours or, or even more. Me too. I'm just looking at the clock. I'm so, I was like, I can't believe like we, like it's like almost three hours and like. And that was like the fastest three hours ever, honestly. <laughs> but honestly, I, I want to thank you, Rob, because um, just thank you for everything that you do and every, everything that you contribute to music and music journalism and all of the takes you bring to the table. It's Thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Like, it's, <laughs> like, it's totally inspirational. I hope you, I hope you do them for like 
you know, other artists you love and idolize. Because like, part I guess like part of also like the Beatles thing is they teach us how to be fans of something. So like, you know, people who who like become Beatles fans, they go on to become, you know, fans of something else. You know, like, you know, whether it's like, you know, like literature or baseball or 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 yeah. you know, or you know environmental activism whatever people are into the beatles teach us passion you know they so, really like, do and 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 how to translate that into like a long ongoing adult life so um, and teach us how to make it influence every single thing you do for one year and then switch <laughs> to something else totally totally <laughs> i love like also how like yeah and like like it's really funny like something I, like i mentioned in the book but it's always weird to me how like the phrase primal scream like Everybody in the English speaking world knows what that means. It's like yeah. John was into that for like three months, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's all primal scream. And like, we all know what like a primal scream type of expression is. And it's like, right. it's just because John was into this thing for an entirely <laughs> tiny period of time and forgot about it. But, you know, like, yeah. but yeah, like you say, you know, like that they, they threw themselves wholeheartedly into all those things. Yeah. But also some things that turn out to be keepers, you know, like it's certainly like, like, George like discovering religion the way he did and like overnight I've seen the light and like I'm going to and like honestly like from my adult jaded perspective I guess I would be like yeah that's gonna last you know like six months yeah. or like whatever like it's like no he like he he stayed true to that and he passed it on yeah. almost everybody in the English speaking world knows what transcendental meditation is and yeah. like it's mostly because of George Harrison and you know yeah there's also you know Ringo's out there talking about a David Lynch and of course like the Maharishi himself and millions of other people who've like talked about TM and passed it on and like people who are like continuing this practice around the world. Uh certainly don't mean to suggest that it's any kind of searcher, but like everybody right. knows what it means and we hear about it and what it's supposed to be doing. Like George Harrison is largely personally responsible for that. It's insane. Oh, absolutely. And even with things as simple as picking up instruments. Absolutely. Like for me, I picked up the guitar because number one, I wanted to be like the Beatles. And number two, because songs expire. You've Got to Hide Your Love Away is only two minutes and 30 seconds long. <laughs> I, I want to be in that song for three hours. So yes. I pick up the guitar and I play it for three hours. And I've been trying to figure it out for 50 years, you know? Like yeah. <laughs> I'm still constantly hearing myself in, in those stories. Like, and that's, you know, and also I think, you know, like when I first heard that song, you know, it was the first time I saw Help and I was, I was five years old. I know exactly how old I was. So I can very specifically place myself in the room where I was, the age I was when I heard that song the first time. I know for a fact I loved it the first time. And I'm like, what did I think it was about? I, right. <laughs> I know I'm processing all the adult emotion in that song. Like I was like, you know, what was it about that song that my five-year-old self totally got? Because, you know, yeah. It's it's a hard and like I'm still you know like I'm still like oh now I finally get that song you know like in my fifties I'm still figuring stuff like that out it's like it's yeah. mind blowing to me just long days in kindergarten you come home and you throw the briefcase to the or your lunchbox to the side and you just sigh throw on a Beatles record it's something that humans can relate to no matter what age because you always feel like that I think yeah and these songs carry with you through you know through your whole life like and they change on you. So like some songs like Penny Lane, another good example. That was a song I loved when I was a little boy. And then when I was a teenager, I thought like, yeah, this is a, you know, pretty technically accomplished, but kind of slick and ultimately like lightweight Paul McCartney confection. And that's like kind of how I heard it in my, my twenties and my thirties. And then like at some point, and I did not make this conscious decision. And I was like, Penny Lane, 
what a song. There's so much going <laughs> yeah. on in that song. And yeah. I, I was like, and also musically, like I heard, so I was like, oh, okay. Like he's taking pet sounds even deeper than Brian Wilson could musically. Like, and, you know, like, and, and I was like, I see why entire great bands based their entire careers, you know, like on this one song, you know, like the zombies were just trying to do this song forever. And they got right. genius out of that. And yeah. I feel like with, you know, Penny Lane, that's a song also that I appreciate now and the different kind of like dialogue between the characters. And I'm like, you know, as a little kid, I know I love this song. And like, there was just a lot going on in the song that I was just too little to know. And it's like really funny that when I was 17, I thought I was too cold too 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 worldly for that song too cool and sophisticated for that song i was like wow when i was 17 i knew nothing about what was going on in that song i'm like oh penny lane that's the bus station where he would wait for the bus that would take him to john's house and like and also like he's doing this song knowing that it was a mile from like where john grew up like and he's doing the song after hearing john sing about strawberry fields and these are all like behind the scenes stuff that like kind of like enhances the song but also just like Hearing it is like, oh, this is this song about this like, you know, adult guy who's world famous, acclaimed, super can go anywhere he wants. All doors are open to him, and he's thinking about this tiny little place that he dreamed of escaping when he was a kid, and like now he's daydreaming about it. And what does it mean to go back there and see it with his adult eyes? And he's kind of walking himself. And you know, I've I've never done the Liverpool tourist tour, so I've never actually been to Penny Lane. I, I want to someday, but like. It's funny that it's something that, you know, it's something that we just know it from him going back and seeing it through the nurse's eyes. And, you know, I was I was an adult before I really noticed the nurse in this song. And I was like, well, this isn't the nurse in this song. This isn't a character that Bob Dylan would sing about and not yeah. a character that Mick Jagger would sing about. <laughs> or, you know, you know, Ray Davies is really the closest you could come. Like, but, you know, that this nurse, she's she's at her job. She's, you know, doing her duty. She's passing up poppies from a tray. And she's like picturing this like cool play that she's in as she walks through her day. And, you know, she's daydreaming. And this is, you know, and this is, you know, this just, it's not how like, it's not how boys saying about girls at the time, but also like, yeah. it's just, it teaches Paul something about his own life to imagine it through this woman's eyes. And yeah. of course, like, Again, we know like, you know, okay, his mother was a, you know, a nurse and like she probably did some selling poppies from a tray if that's something nurses did. I don't even know what that means. Like <laughs> I haven't researched that weird habit of British hospital life if it was. Um, but in terms of like, you know, his nurse and like the way that, you know, that the Beatles mothers keep showing up in their songs in, in fascinating ways. But, you know, we take these songs with us through our lives and the songs change with us. And they're, you know, an ongoing dialogue that we have with ourselves as well as with the Beatles. You know, I just had David Wilde on. I love that guy. I love David Wilde. He's great. He's such a great guy. And he was telling me this story about how he wrote a story for the 2014 Grammy Salute to the Beatles. And the story was about why Paul McCartney wrote the song Let It Be. And David cited it was because the Beatles were breaking up and Paul was looking to his mother for inspiration. And David never got that story cleared by Paul himself. So as John Legend was saying that story in front of the camera and in front of Paul McCartney and the whole thing was live, David was like, oh, I never got approval for that story. Wow. But it turns out, you know, Paul was smiling and nodding and uh, it turned out to be true. But, you know, these songs kind of serve as 
journals for Paul and Ringo now, and they can look back on their 20s and say, that's what I was thinking back then when I wrote yeah, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like hearing the um, I mean, the White Album outtake version of that, where you know he thinks he's going to, you know, to pitch it to Aretha Franklin, and and mm. he's singing, you know, like, you know, Brother Malcolm comes to me, Brother Martin comes yeah. to me, and it's like, wow, like that was going into the song as well, and and to think about you know these songs that you know these other singers around the world heard something in, something that I just recently discovered a couple of years ago was uh, Billy Paul, the '70s soul singer. He did this great. 70s version of a uh, Paul song that I always thought of as one of my least favorite Paul songs from the Wings uh, mid 70s years. Let him in. Oh yeah. Someone's knocking at the door. Someone's ringing the bell. I heard yeah. Billy Paul do this like 70s Philly soul version with Gamble and Huff, and where he turns it into a Black Power song, and he's like, he's singing about black figures from history. They're knocking on the door. You know, do me a favor, open the door and let him in. And, you know, like, wow. Brother Martin, Brother Malcolm. Like, and I was like, my God. I was like, this version, this is a phenomenal song. And I was like, Billy Paul, like, he heard the absolute silliest Paul song. Like, a Paul song that like, could not have taken five minutes to write, possibly. A song yeah. that basically sounds like a bunch of rock stars who are too stoned to get up and, like, answer the door. So they, like, write this song on their couch because they're just catatonic and they can't move. And they actually right. go into a studio and record it. So it's six minutes long and the radio plays it with a completely ridiculous trombone solo. Everything about that song is bizarre. <laughs> I find it insane that it exists. Um, I find that song irritating for a long time. And then I came to find it very amusing and endearing. But like, yeah. I heard Billy Paul sing that song. And I was like, my God, like he made it a totally beautiful, soulful, meaningful, political, like a, a personal intense song. And I was mm -hmm. like, I was like, not even Paul could have heard it that way. Like, like, yeah. like he did this with, you know, the most trivial and fluffy of Paul songs. He made it something like absolutely soulful and heroic. And I love that, like, perfect example, of, like people hearing things in this music that makes them like tell their own story. There was also this really cool moment from the Get Back documentary where the Beatles are recording this song with Billy Preston and John starts reciting the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr. in place of lyrics. Love that. And I think it, you know, it shows that they were very in tune with civil rights and all of that was part of their consciousness at that time. But I forget what song it was though. It's it's weird cuz like oh, it's a uh, uh I want you she's so heavy. Oh, that's right. That's right. Like and their spirits. What's weird because they do that in like I've got a feeling and don't let me down. They like they they, yeah. they sing the I have a dream. It's weird how much they talk about the I have dream speech in in Get Back. Like they're talking about yeah. Martin Luther King specifically. Like but like there's the version they're doing with Billy Preston on the first day of Don't Let Me Down, and like John is doing that speech while Billy Preston plays the organ. And then they're doing that like I want you like, and they're doing the the yeah the I have a dream speech like as 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 they're just making up I want you she's so heavy. Right. Uh, and yeah, and it's wild that like these songs that, you know, that they certainly like, uh, you know, that they, they definitely like, they were inspired by the world beyond Liverpool and like, but they couldn't in their wildest dreams have imagined how the whole world would hear those songs and translate those stories into those songs so that, you know, everything they heard, you know, like with like Paul writing Blackbird because he was inspired by the civil rights struggle in the U.S., and then, mm -hmm. like, 
you know, a, a black artist like Sylvester, thousands of miles away, hears Blackbird and like decides it's, you know, it's a story about, you know, the queer black American coming out like in San Francisco in the seventies. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's wild that like the Beatles dialogue with the whole world that played into these songs, whether it was show tunes or bossa nova or, you know, R&B or gospel or, or the blues or skiffle or whatever, that it was a two-way yeah. dialogue all the time that all these people yeah. like, you know, kept hearing their stories in the Beatles. Aretha Franklin singing the long and winding road is like maybe the most I've been surprised by hearing a cover version of a Beatles song that like, yeah. I thought, you know, I thought that song, I just hated that song. I just thought, really, you know, like, yeah, I, I, I couldn't hear past the goop, you know, the Phil Spector goop on top of it. Yeah. And it's wild how like hearing Angie, Angie Bartosio from Rolling Stone talk about that song. I was like, wow, like I I feel like I was an idiot missing that song like for all those years. She hears right. so much in it that's absolutely there. Yeah. Um, but it's funny that it was a song that I totally dismissed and I heard Aretha Franklin sing it and I was like, oh wow, she like she and Paul are so on the same wavelength and I felt so embarrassed that I heard hadn't heard any of that pain in the song. And Aretha's yeah. like, yep, like don't leave me standing here. I'm still outside your door. Song yeah. ends. I haven't gone through the door yet. You know, I'm still waiting. And it's very much like Billy Paul singing is, you know, someone's knocking at the door. Somebody's ringing the bell, open the door and let him in. And it's like, you know, like you know, these, you know, black artists who are coming from this world that certainly inspired the Beatles, but they added their own stories to that using the Beatles music. And, you know, it was a two-way dialogue between like all these different musical worlds and all these different musical cultures. And it's just like, it's really amazing to see that happen. And another great example of that is when uh, the Beatles are performing Hey Jude on, I believe, the David Frost show in 1968. And Paul just starts interpolating the weight by the band and saying, take a load off Annie. So beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess that's what I mean by them being so open. So that's why I totally, I'm totally on board with your Star Wars theory that like yeah. <laughs> John would have been like, okay, what's going on? All right, we're going to do this, you know? Like, <laughs> and you know, they, yeah, we absolutely would have had, you know, like they would have had Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, or like they, they would have redone every eighties movie franchise. They would have like yeah. hopped onto every trend. I really feel like they would have made a great, you know, like late eighties Detroit techno album with, you know, Kevin Saunderson and Derek May and Juan, Sam, Juan Atkins. I, I I feel like that, like, that would have been a, you know, a great Beatle project that absolutely would have happened because they could do all these things that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think John would have even ventured into producing rap in the 90s, just sampling. I would think he would have loved sampling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he totally would. He said, I said wow, I wish that this existed back when I was getting sued by you know, the Genovese family over like stealing from Chuck Berry songs. Yeah. It's like, I take one line and I'm in court for years, you know, like, right. and I have to do the whole rock and roll album. Yeah, exactly. Too. Like, cause I signed the stupidest legal settlement in the history of rock star lawsuits. Yeah. Like, just like the whole, like, you know, like that they would have been so fascinated by all these worlds and that like lots of rock stars did their own terrible versions of these, you know, like, Certainly, like everybody remembers when, like you know, Lou Reed did a rap song. You know, like, there was uh, like yeah. I guess we all remember when Paul McCartney kind of did a rap song. But you know, we, we'll 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 just we'll just let that pass. There's no need to mention <laughs> the title here. But um, you know, I I feel like competing with each other, they would have been forced to you know, to really open up to the world that was, you know, grooving on their music just as they were grooving on the world's music. And 
if this dial would have kept going, but it, I feel like it's kept going after the Beatles stopped and, and it'll keep going like after they're all gone and it'll keep going after we're all gone, you know, musicians, but also other artists will still be hearing the Beatles and saying like, yep, that's telling me to go out there and tell my story. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's honestly the perfect way to sum up the Beatles. They're storytellers, they're time capsules, and they are the essence of music in the past, present, and future. And they always will be. Absolutely. It's no exaggeration. It's crazy, but like, yeah, it's it's no exaggeration. Well, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I honestly cannot even begin to tell you how much I enjoyed that conversation. That, oh my God. That was so, so, so fun. Uh, yeah, I was like, clearly like we could have talked all night. Like it was so funny because like ever since I've been listening to your podcast, I've been like, you know, like wanting to like, you know, like talk about this stuff with you. And this was like even more fun <laughs> than I imagined. <laughs> well, I'll have to have you back on sometime and we can dive deeper into solo albums and single songs. And but I'm I'm such a fan of like a, well, everything you do, like, uh, you know, on Twitter, like, honestly, like, you're one of like three reasons that I like actively look forward to checking that site like oh thank you rob that that means a lot to me thank you very little else that's pleasant that's 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 going on there but like but just with the podcast and that like just thank you for everything you do Thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. Thank you, Rob, for coming on. Everybody, be sure to go follow Rob on Twitter, at Rob Chef, and check out his book, Dreaming the Beatles. Follow us on Twitter, at Beatles Earth. Check us out at BeatlesEarth.com, and follow this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next week for another very special guest. 